This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, located in caverns, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 650, another landmark collector's edition of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I mean, I feel like this one is an actual landmark collector's edition, and we're using it to review old comics. You get so mad every time I name it. Barring but this further, one is one. Barring any further mutation, I will be your head number one for the duration of this podcast, and my name is Matt Baum. I'm head number two, a.k.a. the Internet's Joe Patrick, and my last mutation didn't go so well as I joined Bodies with head number one over there. You may wonder what all this mutation talk is about. Well, the Cosmic Long Box is in charge of the show today, and as always, it's picked eight classic comic books for us to review and to discuss based on a theme. And this episode's theme is, it's, no, you had it, you had gold already and then you changed it. What do you mean? It's when non-mutants mutate, Whoa. not when heroes mutate, and then in parentheses, but not mutants. I like that better. <laughs> no, it's so clunky. <laughs> when heroes mutate, not mutants. <laughs> After that, we'll head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum and use one of our daily minor spells to make our must-read picks for next week's new comics, but now... The Cosmic Longbox beckons, and who are we to deny its otherworldly machinations? It's classic comic review time in the Ziggurat. Always, the Cosmic Longbox demands we revisit classic comics based on a theme, and this time we'll be talking about major changes to beloved heroes' physical appearances. Not costumes, their bodies. Like the time yeah. the thing grew spikes, or when Thor turned into a frog. Superhero mutation has been an ongoing gag in comics since the Golden Age. And I've been corrected, we'll be starting in the Silver Age today. Joe Patrick. Yeah, I mean, come on. Take us back to a simpler time in comics when we could still make fun of fat people. Okay, you're jumping the gun here. Oh, sorry, you're doing super. You, you've jumped you've jumped a <laughs> uh, you've jumped a little bit closer to the bronze age. Uh, <laughs> But my peak Silver Age read for this week is Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 53. It's from DC Comics. The year was 1961. Oof. It's written by Jerry Siegel. Yeah, that's right. That Jerry Siegel. That's how early it was in the uh, Silver Age. It's got art by Kurt Swan, and the price was 15 cents. Here is a synopsis. Jimmy discovers a strange chest on the beach, which contains an enlarging ray. Like you would, like sure. one does. Hey, later yeah. on, you have a Spider-Man comic where a bunch of thugs find a Hulk maker in a locker. So. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> he accidentally hits a turtle with the ray, and with the turtle acting as a filter, the ray strikes Jimmy as well, because that's how rays work. <laughs> this one. He is transformed into a giant turtle man and falls under the influence of Goxo, an Atlantean criminal who invented the growth ray. I hope you're not hoping to learn more about Goxo because his involvement in the affair is a complete afterthought. Yeah, it's limited at best. <laughs> it is a footnote. Uh, Jimmy becomes a menace to the sea lanes, breaking bridges and destroying ships. He then stuffs the ships into an active volcano, 
uh, in an attempt, I guess, to cover up some pirate treasure with molten metal. I don't know why you wouldn't just take the treasure, but whatever. Right. Superman is able to stop him and uses Brainiac's shrink ray to restore Jimmy to normal. While Lori Lamaris informs them of Goxo's involvement, that ha- literally happens at the end of the comic, the very end. Uh, I don't know why I'm still caught off guard, but I'm surprised every single time a Silver Age comic doesn't start with the story that's on the cover. Uh, there's always multiple stories in these Silver Age books, at least most of the time. And I always think, okay, the cover story is the first story. No. Instead, of the giant turtle man, we get a story about how Jimmy accidentally gets trapped in the bottle study of Candor forever. Yeah, this happens every time you pick meaning one of a these, few days. It's uh, a few days at best. I end up reading like three, at least five or six pages before I go. Oh, it's not this piece of shit. It's the next piece of shit. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, during those few days, he uses Kryptonian technology to stalk his girlfriend. Then he wipes his memories of said girlfriend when he learns that she's moved on. And again, this isn't forever. Like they say, it's going to be as there is always a handy serum for every occasion. Right. I like uh, this is like, you, bitch. I don't remember you. What do you think of that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, turns out Lucy was only interested in him when she thought he was pretending not to know her. Women, am I right? <laughs> the main event goes down pretty much as the synopsis described with the added delight of Goxo's plan relying entirely on wild coincidence. I mean, 100% reliant on coincidence. And then trying to get Jimmy to kill himself after Superman <laughs> knocks him out. It's like, Jimmy, you big <laughs> weirdo, go to the ocean and drown yourself. <laughs> what else are you going to third- do, you weird turtle dork? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <he's right>. <laughs> <laughs> the third story is a King Arthur time travel thing involving Mr. Mixes Pitalik that I forgot before I'd even finished oh, reading it. God. Uh, I mean, whatever. It was fine. Uh, overall, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen 53 is a pretty delightful example of Silver Age weirdness with great art by Kurt Swan, who I consider the platonic ideal of Silver Age DC artists. Uh, and if you can find a complete reprint with the ads and everything, it is even better. Uh, I'm giving this a buy it. It's goofy and it's fun. It's like, it is dumb. I think I hate silver age comics i i I, no. I i don't mean to sound like a curmudgeon but every time i read these i i groan and i just try and picture how was this written who pitched this and then i realized nobody was pitching anything i mean it's jerry siegel yeah guy invented superman what do you want nobody was pitching anything at this point all they said was we need a comic book and we need it in 30 days and they went here you go perfect print it you want to know what it's about jimmy turns into a giant turtle man great love it <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean who knows i don't know i don't know There's where they just came no up with way the like, story there is no story here it's bizarre. now like, I, I try to be i try to be generous uh, i try to be more forgiving i should say not generous uh with books like this because i know that they were specifically written i get it for little kids i get it and but- and so uh yeah they're dumb they don't like they're the the sense of logic makes sense. like jimmy the entire goxo's plan no hold is on literally I, let me talk about that for a second okay because you're saying this is written for little kids but there is a detailed and completely ridiculous plan at play here <laughs> that is not like a fairy tale or something for little kids. They could have just been like an evil wizard turned Jimmy sure, into a yeah. giant. Not at all. <laughs> they got into it, man. It doesn't make a damn bit of sense. And it's yeah. almost like they're like, oh, we got to fill like seven more panels. 
So just write more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, so like this is the this is the plan. Goxo invents enlarging ray. Right. Check. Um, there is treasure on uh, this volcanic island that he does not want anybody to anybody else to find. Okay. He sends the enlarging ray out to sea where it washes up on shore somewhere where people happen to be walking. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Check. Uh, <laughs> idiot teenager finds box. Check. Um, turns on the ray on accident, hitting himself. Check. That's part of the plan. Uh, grows to giant size where then and only then can Goxo telepathically control said stupid idiot giant sure. teen. Sure. To uh, smash a bunch of ships, melt a bunch of metal, and cover the treasure until such time that Goxo can retrieve it on his own. Right. Instead of just having giant idiot turtle team take the treasure to him directly. Exactly. No, this is what I'm saying. You're a little kid. Are you following this? No. <laughs> you're good. I mean, I think, but I think if you're a little kid, you don't care. The only reason Maybe. I followed it I is because I'm an adult and I'm like, this is the plan. Good Lord. Uh, I mean, at least the third story, the third story was like, oops, wizard. <laughs> you the, know, the art is so very good. Kurt's and, one. And I understand why this stuff is important. I will give it a skim it. I just, I don't. I mean, look, it's not. I have so much. There are better this. Silver Age comics. I, but, I, definitely. But this, yeah. this hyper wacky Silver Age, I can just barely handle I don't know. it. I, uh, the Silver Age, the wackier, the better. So much so that I changed one of my picks after reading two of yours because I couldn't do any more. I, I understand. It's, I get it. And is your name Kent? No, sir. My name is Jimmy Olsen, Chief. Don't call me Chief. I am jumping right over the Silver Age swamp into the 80s to talk about Fantastic Hour. Four, number 310 from Marvel. The year was 1988. This was written by powerhouse Fantastic Four team Steve Englehart with art by Keith Pollard. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I don't recognize Keith Pollard's name at all. I don't know. Our story Keith Pollard, Keith Pollard was a fixture at Marvel in the uh, late 70s and 80s. OK. Our story starts with The Thing and Sharon Ventura shackled at the hands of Fassad, Farouk Al-Fassad, an Arab who refers to himself here as living television. Now, according to his Marvel fandom yeah. page, he's a living electronic image that can take over electronics, fire electricity, and teleport, you know, like a living television. <laughs> so. Right. He, uh, he he is also like um, a holographic chic right. or something. He's right? not like a solid person, but he can make himself solid to touch things. Handy. I, I, I guess. Here, the Thing and Sharon are being held prisoner under a rocket booster of a ship that will carry a satellite into space, which will essentially give Facade, I forgot to mention, spelled F-A-S-A-U-D. See what they did there? The ability to teleport anywhere, making him like living dish or direct TV, I guess. Their, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their shackles are electric, and it shocks them when they struggle. Facade is working with a crooked American ambassador to the fictional Middle Eastern country of Akiria. Of course, the two escape and commandeer the shuttle after Ben spends most of the issue worrying about Sharon's mental state, and he's absolutely right. She needs to deal with some trauma, and Ben fully admits he is not the guy for this job. Facade teleports into the shuttle as the thing and Miss Marvel are trying to destroy the satellite. Things go awry and Sharon and Ben are exposed to more cosmic rays, transforming the thing into a spider. 
spikier version of himself and super hot but very damaged Sharon into the she thing who looks yeah baby she thing kind of scaly sort of mud man like the original thing and she yeah she looks like the original thing right like uh clay almost Sean Workman, the letterer, uses this very techy-looking lettering for facades dialogue. So all I could do was picture him sounding like an old-school Cylon the entire time. Right, yeah, or a, a Dalek. Right. Englehart writes Ben as the simple-minded tough guy we all know and love. And Pollard does a solid job in the art here. And let's take into account just how hard it is to draw a character like Ben Grimm on almost every panel. There is a lot of heavy emotional themes here between Ben feeling rejected since Alicia dumped him for Johnny recently. Turns out it's Ooh. not Alicia. It's yeah, you know, scroll. spoilers. <laughs> She's a scroll named Elijah. Johnny Elijah, actually yeah. marries her. <laughs> Ben has feelings for Sharon, but she's an emotional wreck after her trauma at the hands of Dr. Mouse. As it happens, she they don't come right out and say it, but in the pages of Captain America, where she was taken captive by Dr. Carl Mouse, they very much insinuate she was raped. And in this, she like is terrified the touch of any man and stuff. Like, it's truly yeah, yeah. sad what she went through, and she has not um, dealt with it. I think it's uh, I think it's uh, the I think it's a, a printing issue, but it's Carl Malice M A L U S is the oh, Marvel character, Doctor Carl Sorry. Malice. Yeah, famous eighties uh, Marvel mad scientist. Gotcha. Then she gets turned into the she thing. I admit Sharon is a blind spot for me, and I always made fun of she thing, but I did not realize how tragic her story was. And is she still around? Is she dead? Is Sharon Ventura a thing? Uh, I honestly. Couldn't tell you. It's got to be I, a while since we've heard from her. Well, yeah. I mean. <laughs> so real quick. Boy. She was the second. She wasn't Captain Marvel. She was Miss Marvel. She was the second Ms. Marvel. Uh, she, at, at some point. like uh, So following um, following Rogue uh, stealing uh, Carol Danvers' powers and, and whatnot. Right. Um, Carol, Carol kind of quit. retires, right? Yeah. Uh, she goes away. She 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 takes off and, and stops being a superhero. Um, and so Sharon is the second Ms. Marvel. And if I'm recalling correctly, um, she kind of gets her start in that uh, unlimited class wrestling federation uh, that the thing was involved in in right. his solo book. She yeah. got she got powers from the power broker. Yeah, because they meet in the thing. Like issue. Yeah, 12. she meets in. Yeah. They meet in the thing. Um, so no, she's still as of as of 2015's Secret Wars storyline. Uh, she was still kicking, and she had been returned to her human form, and had been seen wrestling in the uh, Ms. Marvel outfit. Yeah, uh, she was still she thing. Uh, as of gosh, Secret Invasion, really? because there was a scroll impersonating her. Wow, uh, that was killed by the scroll kill crew. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, and she was recovered from a downed scroll ship after the final battle. Uh, so yeah, she had been stolen by scrolls at some point and, uh, brutal bummer. Sharon's yeah, a yeah. rough life. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't great for her. It wasn't great. Um, the spiky thing is awful. It's just awful. It is a terrible redesign. And I would argue that one thing you're not going to do better than Jack Kirby is design, redesign his, one of his characters. Not only does it make the character even harder to draw, he looks 
ridiculous. Impossible almost to yeah, draw. Yeah, like they say. made it even harder to draw this character. And later, we even see that he grew a weird little spiky dinosaur tail that sticks out of his Yeah, pants. he's got a little <laughs> triceratops tail or whatever it you want to call it. such a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what they were thinking. Like, you know what's boring? The thing. Let's jazz him up a little bit. <laughs> Stupid. I'm giving this comic a buy it because it was a blast to read. Yeah, it's great. And it was so emotionally heavy. Everybody is going through so much stuff. Poor Ben and poor Sharon are this doomed couple. And in the end, they're even uglier and more mutated than they were. Great stuff. Love it. Uh, I've always wanted to read the thing. Like, I love Marvel 2 and 1. I had a bunch of them as a kid. Um, and I always wanted to read the thing ongoing, which is, I know is not, I've heard is not as good. Um, but this particular era of the fantastic four, uh, like, which is in the like year or two, just post John Byrne, uh, is a huge blind spot for me. And so I've only read like one or two from the entire run. I don't, uh, and I loved this. I thought this was so fun. It was fun. I don't think this is like a heavily, celebrated fantastic four no but i mean it but it's good though like it's it's legitimately yeah yeah it's legitimately good i mean it's not yeah it's not like a career defining run it's so peculiar that it's sean workman because john workman was the big time letterer for this era of marvel especially thor burns ff and so i wonder if sean is his brother or his son busy so they had to get his you know his piece crap Um, Sean, i guess and, and uh, as much as I, I like, I love the art. I, I think that the inks by Joe Sinnott do a ton of the heavy lifting, not saying that Keith Pollard is bad by any means. Um, but Joe Sinnott is an inker that kind of lifts up every artist whose work. He oh, touches. for sure. Yeah. So uh, this work is definitely greater than the sum of its part. This is a buy it for me. I thought it was great. I loved it. Catapulting back to the Silver Age uh, in maybe a much less desirable way. <laughs> it's Superman 221 from DC Comics. This was 1969. It's written by Leo Dorfman. Crickets. The and Leo Carrie, Dorfman? The Leo <laughs> Sausage King of Chicago. And Carrie Bates with art by, hey, Kurt Swan. It's also 15 cents. And here is a synopsis for you. In the revolt of the super slave, Pancho, what the oppressed, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> I know, come on, Pancho, the oppressed victim of an island dictator, dresses in a homemade Superman costume. It's Pancho, right? Pancho, it's, it's Pancho, it's Pancho. Pancho, yeah, all right, deludedly believing he has superpowers, but he attracts the attention of the real Superman who masquerades as Pancho. Why? I don't know. And helps him overthrow the dictator. He's trying In, to give the other slaves like a, sure. a hero of their own, you know? Yeah, like right. anybody can rise up and be the hero, which is not true. Superman impersonates him, so he lies. Yeah, to them. It's, <laughs> uh, right. He makes everybody think that Pancho has superhuman powers right. and then leaves. <laughs> Uh, in the two-ton Superman, which is the reason I picked this issue, an alien nectar, potion forever, there's a potion for everything, uh, that Superman drinks, reacts with his super antibodies, and makes him super fat. That's the plot. <laughs> yep. Like Jimmy Olsen, this issue features multiple stories. Unfortunately, neither one of them is great. <laughs> the first story leans on a ton of racial stereotypes to tell a well-meaning story. 
that still manages to portray Hispanic coded foreigners as either comically evil, dumber than a box of rocks or both. <laughs> a strong both. <laughs> it's a strong both. Yes. Uh, and by 1969, the uh, quote unquote Superman disguises himself as X to fool the villain uh, is old hat. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're, we are at this point, 15 years into the silver age here and we've seen Superman disguise himself as many things yeah, like hard traveling heroes is going on right now right no that's that's this is about that 70s five years okay. later than that right. uh yeah no that's 70s but yeah no this is definitely before like dc starts to get starts to get real the second story has a bit more goofy charm to it with clark winning a chance to experience a simulation of the martian surface at the alphatron space center i guess they couldn't get the rights to nasa Naturally, he becomes super fat for completely unrelated reasons and has to slim down at super speed for, again, completely a completely arbitrary deadline that in in and of itself is just buck wild. Now, there's a real deadline. He's got to go and show up to this special vault. I know. It's a key. He's a living key for. I know. Only opens if his exact weight lies. It's like, why? But like, look, you can't like call. You can't call Johnny Science and go, hey, look, I'm running a little behind. Can we push it to noon? Do I have to be there at 8 a.m. on the dock? Or, hey, maybe it's a bad idea to make a weird lock like this. What if I yeah, can't maybe, show up yeah. to open it? Yes, maybe <laughs> maybe don't make the world's most stupidly complicated locking mechanism. While the second story does feel more whimsical, it is also incredibly, though perhaps unintentionally, uh, mean-spirited. <laughs> Everyone is obsessed with Superman's figure, even the man of fat, as the story calls him. He refers to himself as a super fatty, Disaster victims wonder how a lard ass like him could possibly save them. <laughs> and Lois is still somehow fixated on catching Clark Kent in a similar state to reveal the secret of his dual identity. Superman shows up as ridiculously obese. And Lois's first thought is, aha, I've got you now, Clark. <laughs> you just saw Clark Kent and he looked normal. Right. He was not fat. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's Kurt Swan, where like a dam is breaking, and Superman's like, "Oh, normally I just grab a boulder and I'm sticking that dam." Nine witches is fat ass into it do instead. It, so I just stick my butt on it, and then the very next panel, he builds a super scale to weigh himself. Like, right? That's got to be yeah, harder yeah. than taking a boulder and putting it in well, a dam. <laughs> he was worried about throwing a boulder because he thought the fat would mess up oh, its coordination. Please. Which okay, like look, okay, then why don't you just? Hold the boulder all the way in. <laughs> you don't have to throw it. So dumb. <laughs> I know. Uh, Kurt Swan is back to draw both stories, but the heavy inks of George Russo's, uh, who, fun fact, uh, colored that Fantastic Four story. I didn't notice until just now. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, same guy. Uh, they weigh down Swan's normally light pencils. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, it's just, it's not the right fit for a Kurt Swan. Uh, Superman 221's more problematic elements drown out whatever quaint charm it might have had. 
and the art by the normally great Kurt Swan suffers under some dodgy inking. I'm giving this one a leave it. This is not fun. This was not fun. Yeah, this is just another like one of those stupid Silver Age stories where we see like Superman, who's supposed to be a hero, is also a massive liar and willing to lie to everybody all yeah, the time. Yeah, he's a lying liar. <laughs> he lies, yeah, constantly. absolutely. Oh, 100%. and we get to see his super ventriloquism in action here, Oh, yeah, too. <laughs> which uh, knocked me over with a feather. Feather. I thought that first appeared in the 80s. I'm happy to see that nope. it's long... It's been around forever. Oh, it's way too stupid to first have appeared in the 80s. I guess. Yeah, yeah. this was just dumb. And another, like, one of these dumb Silver Age comics where you've got to wonder, like, how were these around for as long as they were? I, I mean, <laughs> I don't I, get it. And, like, things would change, you know, and not, and not, too, and not too long after this. You know, we've got Neil Adams right. kind of reinventing Batman around this time. And then, like you said, in a few years, we'd have the hard traveling heroes again with Neil Adams. And the stories would get a little less like, uh oh, somebody drank something they shouldn't have. And now they're eh, they're filling the blank. They right. wouldn't be like the mad lib of comics and anymore. And Marvel was not doing this stuff at the time. I mean, Marvel. No, they were not. Marvel comics were, yes, they were definitely more innocent and a little sillier sure but it wasn't this garbage certainly no Mar like marvel comics had all marvel comics was always proudly representative of you know quote unquote the world outside your window right. which is their big their big thing and so yeah there wasn't any like oh no a weird alien that looks like a doll you'd win at a carnival accidentally gave superman a cosmic poison and turned him into a fat so anyway just wanted to let you know bye <laughs> yeah. Stupid. Like, that's literally what happened. In the Jimmy Olsen story, Lori Lamaris shows up at the very end to explain what happened to Jimmy and then bounces, and that is it. Because the writers forgot to explain it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's why. just like, like nobody cared, nobody gave a shit. They were just like, I don't know, what can we I like what are we what are we gonna do to Jimmy Olsen this time? I don't yeah. know. Have him have make have Superman make him marry a gorilla. That, I don't that know. That is my problem. These Silver Age comics. It's like I get it, they're on a deadline, they were crapping stuff out, but it felt like nobody gave a shit about the But story. sometimes sometimes they're fun. I guess this time it was not fun. Leave it from me. It's Superman. Faster than a bullet. Stronger. Ugh, no more Silver Age. I can't handle it. I'm going back to the 80s for Incredible Hulk, number 324 from Marvel. Your story and layouts were by Al Milgram with finishes by Dennis Janke. I know I ask this every time, but what does that mean? The layouts, like he just did like the basic stuff. Um, so uh, think of layouts like an outline, right? Sure. Uh, so if if somebody pencils a comic, you understand the difference. You understand pencils and inks. Yeah. No, layouts first are here, Joe. Thanks. Layouts are even <laughs> layouts are even looser than that. Okay. They're just like a really so rough sketch. It, it is kind of like an it's it is literally like an outline of of the action, like a lit a literal layout of like. Here's where things are. Here's the action blocked out. So finishes like, is a larger job than inking. Yes, okay. I would say. Uh, I mean, I, I would say that uh, somebody that does, here we are, George Russo coloring, George Russo's coloring this book. Um, somebody that does finishes on a book is probably contributing more artistically than somebody that is just inking a book. Gotcha. That Not that both don't require a ton of talent. That explains something I say later. So. Okay. Bruce has just recently rejoined with the Hulk and is strapped into a giant machine at Shield's Gamma Base, being treated by Leonard Sampson, who's in a body cast that covers his left side. So yeah. he's currently only rocking one fingerless glove. 
Still awesome. <laughs> Apparently, Samson had separated Bruce from the Hulk and S.H.I.E.L.D. was going to dispose of the monster, but Samson thought he could use the Hulk for good. What could possibly go wrong there? I, I couldn't tell you. He I don't know. even went so far as to beat up all the Avengers while the separated Hulk went on a rampage, and he ended up in a full body cast, and that tells you how that went. Yeah. After Samson got wailed on, Betty stopped the Avengers from murdering the Hulk, too. But I'm not quite sure... What their plan was. There's a scene where Betty's like, no, the Hulk is injured, but don't kill him. My husband's in there. And the Avengers are all just like, like the Black Knights, like whacking his sword. Like it's a baseball bat and Iron Man's making fists. Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> can, can that team of Avengers kill the unconscious Hulk? I kind of doubt it, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Thor I mean, is not even but there. It's, <laughs> but it's both, it's both teams, though. It's the West Coast Avengers and the I East Coast I get it, Avengers. but it's like none of the, like Thor isn't even there. What are these guys going to do? Just like kick him until he dies? Oh, but Hercules <laughs> is there. I guess. I don't know. Later, the Vision used his powers to control density to merge Bruce yeah, and the Hulk again. That is not how that works. Which sounds tricky at best. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a good way to explode somebody from the inside. Right? So now they need to get Bruce into a chemical bath to seal the deal. And Samson feels like a real piece of shit for causing this whole thing. Of course, Rick is there too, whining about how it's all his fault for creating Hulk in the first place. Banner is transforming back and forth while strapped to the machine and, of course, hulks out and breaks free. And S.H.I.E.L.D. agents can't believe it's happening because apparently it's their first day and they've never met the Hulk before. Banner starts physically smashing his way out of the Hulk's chest, begging Samson to kill him. He even grabs a sharp piece of wood yeah, and tries yeah. to kill himself. S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Clay Quartermain, who just recently got done electrocuting ex-General Thaddeus Ross for testing purposes, yeah. shows up and does what any good soldier would do, starts shooting and talking smack to Samson. Hulk has to protect the banner face that's sticking out of his chest from the S.H.I.E.L.D. lasers, and they gently herd him into the chemical bath. They get him in there, but Ross decks a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, throws Rick Jones off a platform to what should probably be his death, and tries to smash the controls of the chemical bath to kill the Hulk. Of course, the Hulk doesn't die, but he emerges from the chemical bath, the Gray Hulk. Oh, and Rick landed in some of the chemical bath, too, which he says must have cushioned his fall. I don't think water works like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm also sure that's the last we hear about that and never affected Rick again. Yeah, no. I love the Gray Hulk. He's a little smaller, not as strong, but he's mean as hell. And later, he takes on a mob fixer persona and names himself Joe Fixit. How can you not love that? I admit I'd never read the origin of the Gray Hulk, and it's just as dramatic and schmaltzy as you would expect. Everyone feels guilty about what happened to Bruce. Bruce is crazy suicidal and mad that his friends won't kill him. I really like Al Milgram, but now that you've explained it, I get why this doesn't look as good it as It doesn't work. look like him in, yeah. in a lot of spots, yeah. It doesn't look like the Spider-Man I remember him on or West Coast Avengers. Right, yeah. He's right. He's he's doing a little bit less of the actual rendering. Right. 
I don't think this run is also exactly celebrated. And the Greyhawk stuff I loved was written by Peter David, and he takes over not long after this issue. But this is still very much in the spirit of the Hulk stuff I remember reading as a kid, even with everyone whining or suicidal or both for the bulk of the story. <laughs> I'm sure at the time this new Grey Hulk thrilled some and made other fans so mad they burned all their comics in the streets, but I'm giving this a buy it. Yeah, I mean, this is fun. Uh, this is, uh, it's like you say, um, when people think of the Grey Hulk, they think of Joe Fixit. They right. don't think of, uh, or or Todd McFarlane, uh, sure, you know, Hulk sure. in the Desert. Jo- this is Todd a McFarlane. really weird time for the Hulk. They don't, yeah, they don't think about, they don't think about whatever this is. Like everyone um, in this book should probably be on Thorazine. <laughs> They're all a danger to themselves. No sure, question. yeah, yeah. <laughs> The art is uh, okay. Uh, it's not it's not great. You know, Dennis Janke is primarily known as being an inker. Um, again, a job that takes a tremendous out of t- amount of talent. Right. You can tell that he's not normally like he's not the draftsman that Al Milgram is. Right. And um, I thought it was super fun how uh, like you have to remember this is before the era where Peter David was like, oh, the Hulk is all mental. Yeah. Everything about the Hulk is mental. Back here, back then, they're like the Hulk is physical. We can we can split these two up like they're two separate beings, and they did it more than once. And they're not just two separate beings. If you want to get them back together, all you gotta do is like take the dude and yeah, shuffle him like a deck of cards, stick him yeah. inside of the monster, right? <laughs> like it's a like it's a Russian nesting yeah. doll. And he moves his guts like when a woman gets pregnant, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and so like this, uh, like this is channeling some immortal Hulk level body horror with Hulk <laughs> totally. busting out of the guts. I mean, it's super super cool um as a as an artifact of a time that no longer really like we don't really think of the hulk like this anymore but yeah this is a buy it for me like i did like i remember reading this as a kid and reading the vision part and going even as a kid going this that's no yeah like what (laughs) (laughs) and like the way the i I didn't read the actual avengers story where it happens but they flash back to it and it looks like the vision just like picks up bruce banner and phases into the hulk and the yep. vision leaves real fast. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep, exactly. It's like, hey, all Whoa. right, you sit down, and I'm gonna run under. I'm gonna run under the garage door as it's closing, right. and you'll be fine. Well, it's like when Kitty Pride does that, people get messed up really bad. They do yes, <laughs> yes. So. It, like if if Kitty leaves something inside you, you die. Yeah, you're in trouble. Um, so yeah, it, like the science is of course ridiculous. But um, yeah, this is fun. It's a buy it. Like it's again very silly. Yeah. But uh, in a somehow less ridiculous way than those Silver Age comics. This was a wild and woolly time for the Hulk when I when I think they were figuring out. And you're right. I think we just assumed that Peter David picked up on something that had always been there. But no, Peter David really is responsible for that whole psychology of the Hulk, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde aspect of the Hulk. I mean, it wasn't there. There were two people, basically. Yeah, yeah. Sticking with 1986, my next review is Thor, number 366. It's from Marvel Comics. It's written and drawn by Walt Simonson. The cover price was 75 cents. And here's a synopsis for you. In his most insidious plot yet, Loki has turned Thor into a frog using a device powered by Surtur's Twilight Sword. But the joke's on him because that frog was worthy and has reclaimed Mjolnir to return to Asgard and whoop Loki's ass before the god of mischief can claim the throne. Okay, 
Two things. First, I had no idea that the Frog Thor story was a four-issue epic. I can't believe you've never read this. I've never read it. And you definitely need to read the whole thing to appreciate it. It's so good. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's second, great. Uh, I know Walt Simonson's Thor is considered one of the greatest creative runs of all time, but this has to be one of the all-time silliest post-Silver Age stories I have ever read. Throughout the course of the adventure, Loki turns Thor into a frog. He makes more frog friends. He fights an evil rat plot that would definitely have led to a lot of civilian deaths and nobody would have known about it if not for this ridiculous situation. He fights, then befriends a Morlock Pied Piper. He meets another frog that is also a man transformed by magic into a frog. This is the thing that happens, okay? <laughs> Get over and, it. <laughs> and then Volstag accidentally saves the day after carrying his daughter into danger in a baby Bjorn. Yeah. Like, a, uh, and she's not a baby. <laughs> no, she, I mean, but he's like, to, as far as his size is concerned, she might right. as well be. He's a big person wearing a normal size Bjorn, like person. Uh, uh, is what it yes. Is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is completely joyously, uproariously ridiculous. And Walt Simonson definitely had to know that as he was writing it, even the story titles are in on the joke. The cover, the cover of this issue asks, what do you call a six foot six fighting mad frog? And then the title of the story inside is simply in all bold caps, sir. You got that right. Uh, glorious. It's glorious. Uh, and through it all, Simonson's art is somehow still incredible. Whether he's drawing a bunch of normal ass frogs or cosmic conflict, the Thor 366 concludes what may be the most infamous adventure of the God of Thunder. It is a total blast to read. Huge buy it. This book is this book rules. One thing, like when you just read out the plot like that, yes, it sounds like silly. No, it, completely it is ridiculous, silly. But it's this, very dumb. But this book takes itself extremely serious. Like, yes, this is not. They're not going for jokes. They're not reaching for laughs. Walt's telling a very <laughs> serious story, like, starring like, Frog Thor. <laughs> but how can? But yes, he's telling a very serious story, starring Frog Thor, and then it's like. Uh, but then he's like, yeah, oh, hey, Thor, yeah, no, I recognize you. I am also a man. <laughs> well, he's got the hammer. I just, I just you know what, I, I pissed off a witch. You know, it happens. It totally uh, happens. And now and now that I'm thinking about it, I think that that frog is Throg. I think that is the frog that becomes yes. the frog we you're, have in the Marvel not, Universe. Yes, you're not right picking now. up on that? Yes. He is but he frog. doesn't show up again until like the 2000s. He's in the Thor core, Joe. <laughs> I, come on. And then like this, Mor the Morlock Piper guy, I was like, I recognized him from the handbook. I'm like, oh, that guy's a Morlock. Oh, he'd been and around. Then he starts yeah. I, then he starts controlling the animals with his flute. I'm like, oh, shit. That was his mutant power. That's what yeah, he did. Uh, it's like, and then like, yeah, the rat, like every, like a ton of people in New York would have died if the rats had made it to the reservoir with that bag of rat poison. Oh, please. A ton of people in New York would have died in every story we've read. Yeah, okay, Come on. <laughs> sure. Uh, but thanks to Thor being a frog and making new frog pals, yeah. he saved the day. It's just like, it's one thing after the other. And then the whole, the only reason Thor is restored is because Volstag gets woozy and knocks a bunch of boulders down. Sure. And destroys Loki's machine. Yeah. Now, okay. Again, at no point was this like a, you know, slap happy Deadpool funny time. No, no, no. It's not like, played for this laughs. This is no, played no. very seriously. And it's so good. I, I, yeah. I I, and in fact, I think the series, I think, I think the, like the tone of it, is what makes it. it yeah, it's like, absolutely. oh, if this, if this were like supposed to be, if if we were supposed to think it was slap happy, it wouldn't be as good. Right. 
like the issue of Spider-Man with Frogman that uh, you you loved, and I was like, I didn't think it was funny, but because it was going, yeah, for no, laughs. this isn't. They, this they're is not playing this. Not at all going for laughs. for laughs. This is Asgardian myth <laughs> right here. Yeah, no, I guess that's true. It is Asgardian myth, but then like the part of the plot is that Loki, Frog Thor, uh, Frog uh, Thor as a frog lifts Mjolnir. Yeah, Just don't ask me how he's worthy. I get that he's worthy, but he still has to lift a hammer. He's still Thor. No, he's, he's just not. He's just a form. frog. <laughs> he can, he's not a hundred. He can't lift a hundred. He's not he class one hundred tons Thor. But that here's the thing: the hammer cannot be lifted unless you're worthy. So it doesn't matter how much it weighs. There's a reason. Now why I will. I will give you up. that. No, I will give he you that as a no prize answer. Worthy. But according to the Marvel Universe trading card set from 1990, Thor's hammer, the materials alone weigh about 200 pounds. Oh, pshaw. So, if you're worthy, you can lift it. It's I get it. Simple. I get it. Like a cancer-ridden Jane Foster could lift it. Yes. So yes. But anyway, Thor, uh, Frog Thor lifts the hammer. He becomes a full-size, yeah, man-height Thor. Six foot frog. six frog Thor. Uh, uh, <laughs> a six foot six fighting mad frog. And Loki's plan to stop this creature is to somehow turn him into more of a frog. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to zap him and turn him into more of a frog. Well, and that was the idea. Like I'll make him not human anymore. And hopefully that'll yeah. work. And then he can't. And he's like, Oh shit. And then he's like, Oh shit. He's wearing his size doubling belt. I'm screwed. <laughs> and then he makes a ribbit sound that is literally like gully womp. <laughs> it, it, like it is phonetically. It's gully womp. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, yeah, you got it. You got me. Walt. yeah, it's great stuff. It is a massive buy it. I love this Thor story. I, I was powerless to resist. Let's finally get out of the 80s and jump into the early 2000s for Spectacular Spider-Man, Volume 2, Number 19 from Marvel 2004. This was written by Paul Jenkins with art by a young spry Paco Medina. This is in the wake of Avengers Disassembled, where the entire Marvel Universe is in flux, and it kind of felt like, don't worry, nothing counts. So, previously in Spectacular Spider-Man, this is from the book, by the way, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, has fallen afoul of a woman with terrifying mutant abilities. Her name is Adriana Soria, but she calls herself the Queen. Her presence has attracted the attention of the military, Captain America, Nick Fury, and his agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but her own interests lie with Spider-Man and his potential as a mate. Very few know the real story behind the Queen during World War II. Anna Soria was singled out for her mutant gene and used as part of a failed super soldier experiment. Abandoned in a military asylum, Anna developed into a new subphylum with both insect and human properties. Note, not part of her mutant ability, okay? No, secondary this mutation. just happened. She escaped with the ability to control all insects and... The one third of the human what? population what? that carries an insect gene. The one third of the what? That is more people than carry the mutant gene. Okay. Yeah, 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 Think yeah, about yeah. A third of the population. Peter Parker is one of the unlucky few. Ever since he encountered Anna as Spider-Man, a bizarre transformation has been unfolding. After a period of strange dreams, physical changes, and troubling telepathic connections to his foe. Peter's transition is almost complete. He is literally becoming a spider. 
Now, Anna controls a device that threatens to destroy all human life within 600 miles, leaving only animals, insects, and her own followers intact, and leaving her to rule them all. Uh, spider, I mean, this is where the pendant, the pendants in the audience will say that spiders are not insects. Nope. They're arachnids, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but, you know, hey. Yeah, you're thinking way too hard, uh, Guess what? Uh, human, there, are, there also aren't one third of human beings that have insect genes. Yeah, guess so. what? We don't have any goddamn insect genes because we didn't evolve from insects, okay? This is Changes Part 3, I should add. Not long ago, during episode 570, which was a proto-Cosmic Longbox episode, during the great new comic drought of 2020, thanks to COVID... We discussed that time that Peter Parker grew six arms in Amazing Spider-Man 101. Well, did you know later he turned into a full-fledged giant spider? I don't mean spider monster. In this comic book, we're seeing him morph into more of a spider monster thing. But in the end, he's just a big goddamn spider. (laughs) Yeah. Paul Jenkins writes the hell out of this script and tying the queen into the original super soldier program that created cap and even went on to explain that not only did the 1946 nuclear testing at bikini atoll awaken latent mutant genes in people like the X-Men, it also triggered latent insect genes in the human population. Right. This, This was all part of a plan to make sure that if the U S got nuked, someone would survive as long as they had latent insect genes <laughs> or Ugh. something like that. Spidey, of course, has big time insect genes. So after he's kissed by the queen, he turns into a hairy spider monster, hideously illustrated by Paco Medina here. Later, he reverts into a giant spider. But fear not, the original Pete was just inside the giant spider and he right. kind of aliens like himself a, out in like a cocoon yeah it's like a cocoon so which is not how spiders work okay? no no i gotta give it to jenkins for what sounds like a really stupid story he, nope. does, he does a much better job here than a green arrow book i'm about to review and paco medina has just always been amazing on art his humberto ramos influences are way more present here than his modern work but still looks fantastic I remember reading this back in the day and laughing out loud, but upon revisit, this change of story is not as bad as I remember. Stupid, sure, but a fun read and sure makes more sense than the last time Pete grew six arms. I'm giving it a skim it. I don't agree. I don't agree with that. No. (laughs) Really? Uh, uh, I mean, I'll give it a skim it, but I don't think it make the six arm story made perfect sense. Peter is tired of all the tragedy in his life. Captain Stacy died. Harry uh, was lost to drugs, Uncle Ben, uh, you know, the whole deal. Uh, and he's just tired of it. He's tired of it. He wants to have a happy life with Gwen. He's like, I'm, I've got this potion I've been working on. Potion, potion for everything. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got this antidote I've been working on that will cure me of my spider powers in case I ever need to. Um, it's time, Now's the time I'm going to drink this potion that I, genius scientist Peter Parker, have created so that I can live a normal life. That makes perfect sense. Oops, it failed, and now I have six arms. <laughs> Why did it well, fail? He's a genius scientist. <laughs> I mean, look, things happen. Come on. This though, this like was like uh, ah, one third, uh, one third of the population with mutant genes, and oh, she's the queen of all insect or uh, insect genes, and she's the queen of all insects. And I'm not even sure that Spider-Man has spider genes because that's not how 
That's not how <laughs> animal venom works either. Look, man, it changed his DNA. And I thought I, sure. he did a perfectly good job of with a bad comic book explanation. Okay, but you like this is not a like you this is not a like this is not me bagging on you. This is just an observation. Right. But you you like to lay more blame at the feet of editors than I think uh, uh than you do at the feet of writers. Uh, because the writers need to be protected. And usually I think, yeah, you're probably oh, right. Paul Jenkins came up with this shit. No question. Yeah. But like, like, no, there's no, no editor was like, Hey Paul, I want you to write this story where Spider-Man becomes no. a giant spider. No, of course not. <laughs> How, well, why he does he become, why does he, he would have been a spider for a year? Or right. And why, wait, wait, why does he, uh, become a giant spider editor, Tom Brevoort? Oh, um, because uh, there is this woman with her boobs hanging out that is in control of one third of the human population, and sure. also she's a mutant, and also yeah. she's as old as Captain America. It's all and right there. Also, it's all there, Joe. <laughs> she is a half bug, but we don't really need to go into it that much. Oh, they it's also like, reveal well, who killed JFK in this book too. <laughs> sure, <laughs> don't forget yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and now I'm giving this a skim it because, like, it could like. Yeah, I've read worse, but no, this is dumb. This is a dumb story. <laughs> Speaking of Spider-Man, my final review of the week is Web of Spider-Man number 70. It is from Marvel Comics from the year 1990. So uh, out of the 80s, but not quite to the 2000s. It's written by Jerry Conway and David Michelini. It's got art by Alex Saviuk and the price on the cover is $1. Here's a synopsis. After an encounter with the Hulk, Spider-Man returns to New York City with a biokinetic energy. It is biokinetic. It's just spelled weird on purpose. Yeah. With a biokinetic energy absorber, a device that he was blasted with during the battle. Completely drained by the battle, Peter soon discovers that the device did more than give him a nasty jolt as he becomes the rampaging Spider-Hulk. Meanwhile, the new owner of the Daily Bugle, Mystery, is going to great lengths to help Spidey's image, while J. Jonas Jameson is up to his usual tricks at his new publishing company. Yeah, what was up with Betty Leeds here? Did she marry Ned Leeds? Yes, Betty married Ned Leeds long ago. I didn't know like, that. Ned, Ned Leeds had been dead for years at this point. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I, just, yeah. I only knew her as Betty Brandt. I didn't know she married Ned Leeds. Yes, she was married to Ned Leeds. Okay. And then Ned Leeds was? The Hobo Goblin. The Hobo Goblin and was, <laughs> and, was, and was moitered. Yeah. Web of Spider-Man was the first title that I actively tried to collect every issue of. Uh, I have a pure and unashamed love of the entire run from around issues 50 through 90. And the first 50 issues are pretty great, too. I just haven't read it as They're much. They're amazing. Of them. Yeah. Uh, that includes some pretty dodgy stuff like werewolf gangsters, lame villains turned heroes, and cosmic Spidey shenanigans. Oh, yeah. As much as I credit George Perez for my love of comics, Alex Saviuk is the artist that influenced me the most when I started drawing seriously. Is this issue groundbreaking in any way? No. Is it fun, classic Spidey comics? Yes. And seeing all the wild subplots from this era really sent me back. I don't even really feel the need to discuss the merits of the actual plot because it's exactly what I just described. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Spider-Man uh, Spider fought the Hulk in New Jersey. Uh, there was a scientist there with a device that absorbed gamma energy from the Hulk. Spider-Man got zapped with it. He became the Spider-Hulk. It's, like it's like a cop, like a human copy machine or something. Basically. Kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
And later, Spider-Man passes out, and when he wakes up, there's some homeless people, and they're like, you want some soup? And he's like, yeah, I'll have some homeless soup. That sounds great. Like, what are you doing, dude? I know. <laughs> I know. Absolutely um, But you know not. what it did? But it also, it, like, it also kind of, uh, it, it was that kind of, like, Sam Raimi Spider-Man, like, you're one of us, Spidey. Like, they didn't mess with his mask. No, you know, they nothing, just took care of him. Nothing. Uh, it's just, it's solid, uncomplicated, superhero fun. Uh in, in case you didn't figure it out by now, I loved Web of Spider-Man number 70. I had a blast revisiting it. It has a buy it. Spoilers for the subplots. Uh, at this point in Spider-Man, the Daily Bugle has been purchased by Thomas Fireheart. Who is Thomas Fireheart? No idea. Thomas Fireheart is the Native American billionaire who just so happens to be the Puma. Oh, okay. And he owed Spider-Man a life debt just like Chewbacca. And uh, in an effort to repay the life debt, uh, Thomas Fireheart swooped in and did a hostile takeover of the Daily Bugle, stole it from Jonah. Oh, this is why the Daily Bugle is writing nice Spider-Man stories. Now it's why the now the Daily Bugle is nothing but Spider-Man puff pieces wow. and like happy billboards about how how great Spider-Man is. And Spidey's like, oh god, not again, not another one of these stupid billboards. Like he hates it. And Jonah has started his own publishing company where he's doing his normal shit. But uh, yeah, that's so Puma has bought the Daily Bugle and is using it to help in quotes Spider-Man. <laughs> See, I, I would argue this story is maybe not as overly explained as the last story, but just as dumb. Peter Parker has this like human copy machine that turned him into the Hulk. He goes to a bus depot and sticks it in a locker. <laughs> or, sure. Like you could go to Four Freedoms Plaza and say, "Read this is huge. He was really important. He was. He's literally exhausted. He got oh, off the bus and he's break. like, the, I can't even. I he uh, couldn't even get off like, the bus. There's some thugs that are just like randomly messing with the dude, and he's like, I can't do anything about that. Okay, the, the cops last are there. time you couldn't do anything about you know crime. Your Uncle Ben got killed. This time, when you can't do anything about a crime that's going on, there is literally a Hulk copy machine <laughs> that is out there that you yeah, stuck in a locker that falls into the hands of, of these same jerks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is the most irresponsible thing. I mean, it's not a it's not a good look. That's uh, way no, more irresponsible not. than killing your uncle. Okay, <laughs> way more. <laughs> mm, I don't know. If you could make another Incredible Hulk, oh my God, Joe, <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> No, and, and apparently it's really easy to turn on too. Uh, yeah, way too easy to turn on. You just gotta jab somebody with it. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird for the sake of weird, and I get what they were doing, and it's fun. Uh, I'm gonna give it a skim it because it it's just I remember a lot of Web of Spider Man that was very serious that I really enjoyed, and this kind of seems like a silly fallback. You know, yeah, I mean, but it was, it was, but that's what I loved about it. It was just like uncomplicated, sure, superhero comics. It was just like, yeah, this is Spider Man getting in an adventure. He fought the Hulk. Oops, now he's a Hulk. Fair enough, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, yes, it's way less, it's way less convoluted than like Queen of the Bugs wants to Spider Man. Like that's, (laughs) (laughs) and I boiled that down into five words. There you go. You want to talk about convoluted and complicated comics. Green Arrow, Volume 5, number 48, from DC, from 2016. This is written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Patrick Zercher. This issue is part of a five-part story called Outbreak, where a group of werewolves, called the Wargs, 
who have been around since biblical times. And while they're monsters, they've also been persecuted by everyone from the Knights Templar to the Nazis to what is here basically modern day Proud Boys. A group called the Patriots that wear ex-president masks in a very point-break callback unleashed a drug during a parade in Starling City that either activated recessive warg genes or just turned people into wargs for a while. Yeah, it's because one-third of the human population has warg genes. Apparently. And this is Starling City, by the way. So this is a very... Yeah, that is something that arrow, they were saddled with from bullshit. the show. Yeah. Ollie, on the other hand, gets bit by the leader of a warg biker game named Maroc. And it results in Green Arrow wolfing out and embracing... Maroc Obama. <laughs> Stop that. And embracing his darker animal side. But he can still fire arrows, too. Good thing his daughter, Amiko, who I'm pretty sure has been wiped from continuity. <laughs> no, she's uh, she's around. Is she? It's not his daughter. It's his sister. In this, it's his full-on daughter. Mm, uh, well, there's somebody. There's somebody. Uh, there is somebody he's related to, uh, running around as Speedy right now, or Red Arrow, or whatever they're calling okay. her. She's in the Teen Titans. Well, and I'm, I don't. I thought it was his sister. Amiko anyway. shoots him with a tranquilizer arrow and then takes Ollie back to the Green Arrow headquarters where she chains him down yeah. and hits him with a drug called Leuconex that cures the wolfy, wargy condition. Also, Ollie has a big dog. Was this a thing on the Arrow show as well? Nope. No okay. dogs on Arrow. This Green Arrow series was part of the DC New 52 relaunched and looked to de-age Ollie in an attempt to move him closer to the character on the Arrow CW TV series. And if you listen to our show at the time, I f hated it. <laughs> at this point in the series, Ben Percy, who is currently writing an excellent Wolverine series, and Patrick Zercher were on the book, and I love both of those guys. Something about the execution here is not working for me at all, though. I'm taking myself out of the not my Ollie Green Arrow fanboy bullshit and looking at this issue objectively years removed from the new 52 and I still do not like it. Werewolf stuff aside, which is dumb, mind you, and I'm not sure what story Percy was going for here, but he writes Ollie as this smug hipster with his heart in the right place, but he's really unlikable and constantly making dog and wolf puns. Maybe that's part of the warg transformation. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's it's one of the symptoms. God. Zercher's art seems way more stiff than usual, too. I get that this story is about werewolves, and the Green Arrow had a much darker tone at this time, but his art doesn't work at all. The action scenes look odd and clumsy. Werewolf Ollie looks like he's having a bad Wolverine hair day, and when he springs into wolf action, it kind of looks like a kid is throwing a strangely posed action figure. The, the story is forced and clumsy, too, and of course, this transformation to Ollie Wolf didn't last, thankfully, and neither did the series, thankfully. Issue 52 was the final issue before Green Arrow was relaunched again in 2016 with DC Rebirth, but Percy was still on the title, only we had a much more recognizable Emerald Archer. I am giving this a leave it, and a lot of the new 52 felt like this stuff, doing stuff to a character just to do it for no reason whatsoever. Oh, and by the way, you couldn't even recognize the character before he was a wolf. So who cares? <laughs> um, 
I have no opinion on this issue. Uh, that's my fault. I, I did not realize you had switched your pick. I should have warned um, you. I couldn't read it. No, it's okay. Right. No, it's I normally I'm uh, I am looking at the notes pretty obsessively and I just didn't I didn't catch it. Um, but I will say this. Uh, I have noticed that kind of stiffness with Patrick Zercher's art before. Um, and I agree that after Rebirth, uh, Green Arrow was a much better character more in line with what we love about him yeah um and like like i know that people have a soft spot for the jeff lemire andrea sorrentino uh run of the uh new 52 green arrow it's it's still the new 52 green arrow yeah and it might be good on its own but as green arrow uh, no thanks you know it's not what i want from green arrow it's well executed in that new status quo they had for the character but the status quo for the character is one of the biggest problems yeah no no i i'm with you um i i, I didn't care for that um and i thought the green arrow just kind of got better after this this Definitely. point in time so joe none of these mutations stuck around too long but before we can return to our current timeline we need to pick our favorite comic from this pile to enter the THN permanent collection. Which one was your favorite? I mean, it's Thor, no question. Yeah. Like, I, I was very pleasantly surprised by that FF comic, and uh, so I did really love that, but no, hands down, it's Thor 366, and it's glorious madness. Right. Uh, it's, it's so good. And if you want to talk about, like, ballsy transformation, something that they're going to, like, do to a character, because it's one thing to make the thing spiky. Or, oh, Spider-Man turned into the Hulk for an issue. Or another character's a werewolf. Big shit. But when Walt walked into the Marvel bullpen and said, I'm going to make Thor a frog for four issues, they all went, huh? <laughs> and, and, like, it should be, like, to be perfectly clear, of the four issues, he is an actual frog yes. for three of them. Yes. He does not become a man-sized bipedal hammer wielding frogman until this issue yeah and it's great it's yeah. so good it's ballsy as hell uh, yeah absolutely my pick if you want to know more about these comics check out our show notes where you can find links for all the books we discussed and if you want to read along with thn you can find each episode's review list on our twitter and facebook weekly on tuesdays also we want to know what you guys thought of these comics our reviews in general or anything that you read this week on our live call-in show, THN Cover to Cover. It'll be this Saturday on Facebook Live from 11 a.m. to noon Central Time. Hey, maybe you guys got an idea for a Cosmic Longbox episode, too. I know we joke that it's, you know, Cosmically Charged comes up with this stuff, but secretly it's us. So you got an idea? Let us know. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, give us what you got. Joey, we find ourselves back in our proper timeline, and as always, we've rematerialized in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we store our library of magic tomes and enchanted items that help us glean the secrets of next week's comics. So tell the nerds, what's your must-read pick for next Wednesday, January 19th? Uh, well, apparently my pick for this week got delayed. I so my pick for so. next week <laughs> is She-Hulk number one from Marvel, written by Rainbow Rowell, with art by Rose Antonia. It's four ninety nine. Uh, I am not going to reread the solicit. Yeah, we've it's, read it. It's the return of the sensational She-Hulk. It's something we've been begging for for years. I'm very excited about it. I can't wait to read it. It is my pick. Yeah, and then we're going to review it next week on the show. Absolutely. Yes, so. absolutely. 100%. My pick from next week also comes from Marvel. It is the X-Lies Wolverine. I refuse to say 10. Number one, 
It's written by Benjamin Percy with art by Joshua Casera. And here is your solicit. The biggest Wolverine story of all time begins here. Week one. <laughs> Logan, James Howlett, Weapon X, the mutant best known as Wolverine, has lived many lives under many identities and in many places. But never before has the fate of the future been so entwined with the past. Fan favorite eras of Wolverine's saga are explored anew, along with never before seen episodes as Logan must travel to various points in time to prevent the death of a key figure in mutant history. But these lives are only one side of the story. Be here for the start of the time-shredding saga across all of Wolverine's history and future yet to come. We reported on this a while ago. It's, I love Wolverine. He's one of my favorite characters. And I love Wolverine at his lamest and his best. So I cannot wait for them to revisit this crap. No nose, bone claws. The color alone. It's all there. You got no nose Wolverine. Do do rags. You got hairy weapon arms, X Wolverine. Hairy elbows. You got, give it to us. You got patch. <laughs> you got it all, man. Oh, I can't wait for this. It's gonna be too much fun. I agree. The THN trade of the week goes to Compass Volume One. It's a trade paperback from Image Comics. It's sixteen ninety nine cover price. It's written by Robert McKenzie and Dave Walker with art by Justin Greenwood. Here's your solicit. Greg Rucka proudly presents a new direction in adventure. Shahida El Amin is many things: scholar, cartographer, astronomer, mathematician, scientist, explorer, adventurer, and when need be, two-fisted fighter. Setting out from Baghdad's legendary House of Wisdom during the Islamic Golden Age, Shahi's quest brings her to 13th century Britain, where the Welsh are whispered to possess the secret of eternal life. But Shahi's not the only one after it. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, this is reteaming the uh, old guard Tales Through Time writers, Robert McKenzie and Dave Walker, who also worked on the Lazarus Sports book with Justin Greenwood, who worked on Lazarus X plus 66 and Stumptown. And they take you on a breathless race across the map. Follow the compass to unlock the secrets of the ancient world. It collects compass one through five. If I recall correctly, you reviewed compass number one on the show and really liked it. Loved it. It was great. And I kept reading it. And if you have not, this is your chance to catch up. These are like Greg Rucka's boys. He found them. Loves these guys. Yeah, love it. Said, make this story. It is fan friggin' tastic. Check this one out. You can find our picks of the week every Wednesday on Twitter and Facebook too, where we want you to let us know what you're reading every week. Nobody does it. Please get online. Yeah. Tell us what you're excited about. Let's talk comics. That's not necessarily true. So like Brian Domingos comes on cover to cover and he talks about stuff he read every week. He does. I mean, sometimes, not every week. Almost every week. And look, we can't rely on Brian Domingos forever. It's true. We need other friends. Excelsior! Oh. <laughs> that is it for THN 650. And next week, we are back to reviewing new comics. Plus, we're going to give you a taste of our Patreon Extra. And if you want to wrap about this week's episode or any of the weekly nerdy news we're following, hit us up on our live call-in show. We just mentioned it. It's THN. It's cover to cover. We do it every Saturday at 11 Central Time. Posted on our Facebook page. And don't forget about our question of the week. Ooh, be sure to watch Peacemaker this week, too. Oh, yeah. Pe oh, and also, um, Eternals hit Disney Plus today, oh. if you have not seen it. There you go. Um, and then there was something else. What am I forgetting? Oh, Naomi. 
The series premiere of Naomi was yesterday, along with the season two premiere of Superman and Lois. And let me tell you, they were both excellent. Okay. This week's question was submitted by Harvey Locust. What is the most important crossover to you? Whether it introduced one of your favorite characters, changed the outlook for a group, or rewrote the entire universe, we all have a major event that we like more than the rest for one reason or another. What is that event for you? In other words, not which one is considered the most momentous historically, but the comic book event or storyline. It doesn't have to be like Secret Wars or whatever. Sure, it can sure, be sure. like, you know, One More Day or The Death of Superman. Ultimatum. The ultimatum, Dare sure. Ape. Make a case for it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But we're talking about the event that is most important to you personally. That is a great question, Harvey. Love it. Uh, please keep your question of the week suggestions coming. We need them every week. You can call us at 402-819-4894 or join our Zoom by clicking on the link in our Facebook Live video chat. And if you can't be there live, shoot an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the hotline and you could be internet famous. If you are going to send in a recording or leave a voicemail, please keep it to two minutes or less so that we could share the air with all of the uh, callers, that uh, the live callers, because we get a lot of them. And... Uh, their time is precious. If you're new to this show and you'd rather make fun of fat people than listen to any more, I assure you, you're a jerk. And you just haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital longbox archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast, and it wouldn't be possible without the generosity of donors like our newest patron, John Tully, who I'm also pretty sure is a famous English PGA golfer. Don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure he is. I won't. So yeah. I'm just going to assume it's that John Tully, and I can't believe yes, he listens to Yes, it's definitely that John Tully. Yeah. If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd, where you'll hear all kinds of exclusive bullshit, and it's a good time. Or you can just make a one-time donation via yeah, PayPal. It's bull- bullshit in a good way. Yeah. Or you can just make a one-time donation via PayPal. We get a little donate button right there on the site because you just like spreading goodness. You're just like putting it out there in the nerdy universe and okay. giving to a show that tries to be inclusive and friendly when uh, we okay. could be but, really shitty and probably have a lot more listeners. <laughs> all right, but listen, what if though, Matt, what if I want to make fun of dumb foreigners? Uh, again, we would probably make more money and have more listeners, but we choose to do better, okay? Uh, before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Adam West, Burt Ward, and the whole cast and crew of the 1960s Batman TV show, most of whom are long dead. True. We are recording this show on Wednesday, January 12th, the day Batman debuted on ABC 56 years ago in 1966. Fun fact, and I don't know if it's true, so we'll put an Milestone anniversary. We'll put an asterisk by the word fact, but it is out there. Burt Ward reportedly took pills to shrink his penis because it was too prominent in his little ramen pants. <laughs> is that something that you, is that a thing though? Penis shrinking pills? Hey, is that- all I know is there's constantly ads for pills that make it bigger. All right. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just slap his big wiener on your pile. This is the two-headed nerd signing off. <laughs>